Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our preaching team. And I want to tell you today, God's up to something. God's moving today. Aslan is on the move. The Lord is here and he's among us. And uh, he's been working today, saving lives. This morning, uh, about six minutes into the first sermon, a gentleman right there in that fourth row, his heart stopped. And uh, the people of God responded. There's a 40-year doctor sitting over here who only comes at 1045. But this morning, he and his wife said, maybe we should go at 9. And they showed up. And nurses and EMT folks showed up. Yeah, you can clap for that. And the guy literally, his second time ever at church, at least at our church. I don't know about his whole life, but at our church. And... Uh, the friends who brought him said if he'd been home today, he'd be dead. He was literally brought back to life. And I hear the shouts as we praise. And I hear Derek's tears as he reads about the glory of God. I just want to tell you, God's up to something today. And we, we open the Bible today in the, in the midst of, I think, perhaps that key inflection point in all of our lives that intersection between the pain and heartbreak and suffering of life in a fallen world under the judgment of God and the hope that is available for anyone who will wash their robes in the blood of the lamb. So that's where we are today. We're in Revelation six and seven. You're gonna want a Bible as we follow along today. Uh, we're gonna see how to stand in a world under judgment This is a painful world, isn't it? I could ask you to imagine a world like this. Imagine a world where wars break out and drag on, where tropical storms and hurricanes kill and displace thousands, where earthquakes kill tens of thousands, where pandemics grip people with fear, where wildfires ravage beautiful islands, where banks collapse, where inflation soars, where supply chains break, and where violence erupts in cities and schools. Could you imagine a world like that? You don't have to because you live in it. What do you make of that? That's what we're going to see in this passage today. We've been saying along the way some reminders about Revelation. Revelation is less about predicting the future than it is about preparing for now. And we live in that fallen world, and we live in that world where at any given moment, life hangs in the balance. And we want to be ready when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? By God's grace at Redemption Gateway, he will. We've said Revelation isn't a warning about persecution, but a warning about the temptation to compromise in order to avoid persecution. Persecution's coming. Difficulty's coming. Hardship is coming. It's increasingly unpopular to be a Christian. So persecution's coming. The only way to get out of it is to sell out, to compromise, to go with the way of the world to yield your allegiance to Jesus and instead give it to someone or something else. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna hold fast, even if it means persecution comes. We've also said that Revelation wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. This is a weird document. It's part apocalyptic literature, which is all this symbolic imagery talking about heaven's perspective on earth and the future's perspective on now. And it's prophetic, it's a prophetic book talking about things that are to come and calling God's people to faithfulness. It's also a letter. It's written to these real churches filled with real people, 
calling them to live faithfully, which means as we study it, and this is especially important this week and in the coming weeks, uh, it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. So, so it's not like these people got this letter and they're like, holy cow, we don't know what this means. Hopefully some people will come along in 2023 who can explain it. No, they understood. Here's what this means. Here's what this is calling us to. And so our job is not to try to decode some futuristic thing, but to actually try to get into the space that they were in and read it so that it means to us what it meant to them. Now, it is getting gnarly. Right, this is the part of the, right up to this, everyone's been like, man, I love this study of the Revelation. Well, yeah, it's been great. Jesus is awesome. He's calling the church to conquer. He's on the throne. And now it just gets weird, okay? We're getting into the weird part. And I think it's still going to be great, but it's, uh, it's pretty weird. And uh, there's a lot of this symbolic imagery that's happening. And it starts to remind you actually a bit of a Picasso painting. And so here's, a, here's one of Picasso's most famous painting, paintings, a little boy looking at that. Uh, there is, it, is in the museum. You know what that's about, right? I mean, isn't it obvious? I mean, just look at that painting. I mean, obviously, that's about the Spanish Civil War, duh. You know, but that is what it's about. It's this Picasso, right? It's classic Picasso. You look at it. You don't know really where to begin. You don't really read this painting left to right. It doesn't exactly, like, what, what's happening? And it's, th this is essentially the book of Revelation. It's doing the same kind of thing. It's providing you with these sort of shocking images that don't appear to be lined up exactly linearly, but are, are communicating something powerful and something important. That's what's going on in the book of Revelation. That's especially what's going on in this particular section as Jesus begins to open the seven seals. So our approach in this is not to take this as like a, a, a literal linear sequence of events of things that are still far away to come, but actually to see, especially the first part of it, as these are things that are happening already, that are happening all the time, that are happening with greater intensity, and that in the end will ultimately culminate with an extremely intense experience of what we describe or what we read here in chapter 6. You can sort of view this whole section as it's describing the battle we're in. It's describing the game we're playing. And it's like each level gets a little bit harder, right? This is like a video game. Some of you will resonate more than others with this illustration, right? But that kind of classic video game where you fight level one and then you get to the end and there's a big bad guy and you got to beat him. And then you get to level two and then there's a little bit badder guy and you got to beat him. And then you get to level three and there's a little bit badder guy. And then eventually to win the whole game, you got to, you know, beat the big kahuna who's like really, really tough. That's essentially what's going on in the book of Revelation. It's describing here's what life is like in a world between Jesus' resurrection and his return. This is what it's like. And here's how it's going to culminate with a really big, bad, difficult thing. So here's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at really two things. We're going to look at how to understand the chaos and we're going to look at how to stand with Jesus through it. We're right at that hinge point. We're right at that intersection between the pain and the difficulty and the challenges in this fallen world, but the hope that comes through Christ. How to understand the chaos, how to stand with Jesus 
through it first, how to understand the chaos. This is Revelation 6, but we can't just begin in Revelation 6. We have to think back to Revelation 5. And if you weren't here last week, what we saw in Revelation 5 uh, was John was there at the throne uh, and he saw there was a scroll in the hand of God. And this scroll uh, created great despair because there was no one worthy to open the scroll. He began to cry. He began to weep. No one's worthy to open the scroll. This scroll represented the, the plans of God to punish sin and to bring renewal and redemption to all of creation. And no one can open this because everyone else has contributed to sin. They've contributed to life in the fallen world. So there's all this despair. And then John hears someone say, oh, wait, 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 listen up. The Lion of Judah, he can open it. So he hears that. And then he turns and he sees a lamb. So the lamb informs the lion. Jesus is this lion and lamb. And Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. And so now he has this scroll, and this scroll has these seven seals on it. You can kind of imagine this scroll. It's right, this rolled up piece of parchment, and there's these seven like wax seals. So what's happening in chapter six and through chapter eight is Jesus is beginning to remove the seals. Now, get this. He's not even yet opening the scroll. That's not until chapter 10. But here he's gonna remove the seals. And, and this is important, this is all pretty layered, right? When he gets to the seventh seal, in the seventh seal, there's gonna be seven trumpets. Uh, that's what we'll look at next week. In the seventh trumpet, there's gonna be seven bowls, right? This is like a Russian doll thing. You know, it's like you're mixing bowls at home. There's like the big one and then the little bit less big one, right? And they all sort of stack up. These images all stack up. So get this. It's not meant to be read in this linear way, like it's this and it's this and it's this. This is not a timeline. This is a Picasso painting. And Jesus is opening the the seals. And this is the time between his resurrection and his return. What is life like? Well, it's chaotic. It's crazy. It's filled with wars and rumors of wars. It's filled with disease and violence and school shootings and pain and sickness. How do we make sense of that? Well, let's look at these seals. So there's these seven seals. The first one, uh, sorry, the first four, by the way, are, are what you maybe have heard of as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, the first four each represent these four horses and, and riders that show up. So the first one in chapter six, verse one. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come, and I looked and behold a white horse And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. This white horse represents the destabilizing political and military conquest that's going to happen in this fallen world. And this image of the rider with a bow and arrow is is most likely an image of what's known as the Parthian shot. Uh, The Parthians were this uh, group of people next to Rome and the Roman Empire who were constantly attacking it and who were famous for this kind of hit and run shot that they would do where they would ride on their horse and they would aim with the bow and arrow and they'd take off. It was this hit and run move they had. And this is a picture of what's going on. In this world between Jesus' resurrection and his return, there's gonna be lots of destabilizing political military attacks and conquests. That's the white horse. Then there's the red horse, chapter three. I'm sorry, verse three, chapter three, verse four. And out came another horse, bright red, the color of blood, by the way. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that, it, so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This red horse represents conflict 
and violence. Maybe your kids have said to you a sentence like they've said to me that I thought, I can't believe that's a sentence I have to ever hear. Hey, how was your day today at school? This was the other day. Oh, it was good. Uh, We did a lockdown for an active shooter thing. That's just totally normal to my fourth grader. Why? Because of the red horse. This red horse of conflict and violence and mayhem is running wild through our world. The third horse is the black one. It says in verse six, it had a, or I'm sorry, verse five, its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the middle of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. The, here, the picture here is especially of famine. In times of famine, you would have to get out scales to measure out how much food you could get. And these descriptions of how much stuff costs is like 10x normal. This represents famine, economic upheaval, inflation. Uh, can you imagine inflation, by the way? This is basically like when you go even to Costco, gas is almost five bucks. And it's like, it's the black horse. This is it. The economic upheaval. The fourth horse is the pale horse, representing death from violence and famine and disease. It's a pale horse, it says in verse six. I look, behold, a pale horse. Now, that word pale, this is pretty interesting. The Greek word for it means yellowish green. So pale is like, it's not translucent. Pale is like the color of gross, right? Like snot mucus. That's the, it's a snot horse basically is what this is. And this represents the death from all of this stuff. So a lot of people think that the fourth horse is kind of a summary of all the other things. Uh, Death from violence, from famine, from disease. And you put these four horses together and you realize this is just what's going on all the time, right? This is why you read these, these four particular seals being broken and these four horses on the loose. And it's very hard for you to go, well, that's just in the future. Like, no, 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 that's now. <laughs> that's happening all the time. And so let's reflect. Okay, how do we understand this? How, th- this feels like chaos to us. How do we understand it? Well, notice a couple important things. All of these kinds of things are always happening. They're not just in the future. And get this, Christ rules over all of them. What is it that unleashes these things? It is Jesus, the lamb, removing the seal. A lot of times people will go, oh, you know, we, we see stuff happening. We, we feel bad. We got to defend God. And the way we try to defend God is go, well, you know, God, you know, he, he wishes he could stop it, you know, but he gave everybody free will. And the way we describe it, it sounds like, well, poor little old God up there. He's just like going, oh man, gang, I wish I could do something, but I just can't. By the way, how comforting is a God like that? Dear impotent God who can't do Jack anyway. Help me now. No, you're not gonna pray that. But that's not the image. The image here is that Jesus is sovereign over this. The Bible says this all over the place. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. He didn't just use it for good, he meant it for good. We know Romans 8, 28 says that for all who love God and are called according to his purpose, that God's working all things to good for us. And so Christ rules over these things. And here's what we got to understand is that these trials either are being used by God to punish God's enemies or to purify God's people. So the same events can be used to punish God's enemies and to purify God's people. Look at Romans 1. Here's what it says. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
stop there for a second. Notice it doesn't say for the wrath of God will be revealed. It says the wrath of God is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then it describes how that works. Therefore, God gave them up. In other words, here's mostly how the wrath of God works. Is God saying, do what you want. And what we want is power and money and greed and sex and abuse and dominance. That's what we want and that's what we get. C.S. Lewis really famously said, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. You get, you get what you want. You want a life without God, here it is. And so these things that God's allowing, it, it is a form of God's wrath. It is a form of God's justice. It is a form of punishment against an unbelieving world. You wanna not acknowledge me? Good luck. But it's the very same things that God uses to purify his people. Look at what it says in James chapter one. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word various, literally in the Greek, means multicolored. Like white, red, black, snot. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? That seems crazy. Here's why. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. And God is sovereign over this chaos, and it is pouring out on the world, potentially with increasing levels of intensity, to try to wake the world up from its slumber and to try to help us become more like Christ. And then you get to the fifth seal. And this is where it doesn't seem as familiar in chapter six, verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are the martyrs, they're under the altar, they're under the protection of God's sacrifice but they have been killed. And it says that they're asking for justice. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the cry of everyone who's in pain, of everyone who's suffering, of everyone who's persecuted. How long, O Lord? And here's the good news today, friend. Look up here. Every time we ask how long, O Lord, the good news is the answer is not forever. There is an end. It, it will get better. It will improve. God's grace will show up. God will eventually make all things new. It won't last forever. I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but it's, it's going to happen. Right? This is like when I'm, when I'm riding with my kids. So earlier in the day, sometimes Molly will text me and say, hey, you know, you're, you're picking up so-and-so and then so-and-so, and I'm going to do so-and-so, but I made dinner, and it'll be ready when we all get home. Right? And so I'll be in the car, and I'll be with Hank, and he'll go, hey, what are we having for dinner? And I'll go... I don't know, but mom, mom made something. Well, what are we having? Buddy, I don't know, but we're having something. How long, oh Lord? I don't know, but not forever. There will be an end to this pain. 
And then we get to the sixth seal, verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal. And this seems like the, this seems like the big kahuna at the end of the video game, right? This is all stuff that we get a little bit of, but it's in a much bigger magnitude with much brighter language to describe what seems to be closer to the day of the Lord that the prophets had talked about. It says in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Again, this seems to be the day of the Lord, this moment of uh, judgment intensifying with all of this cataclysmic language. And notice, who stands under the judgment of God? Everyone, the rich and the powerful and the governors, but also the slaves, everyone, everyone's going to face God. Everyone's going to give an account. If you die, you will give an account after you die. It is destined for man, it says in Hebrews, to die once and after that the judgment. But then at the day of the Lord, we will stand before God and we will give an account. And if you are not in Christ and you experience this kind of judgment, you will wish you had never been born is what it's saying. And notice that last question. The the wrath has come. Who can stand? If you actually watch, you can find these on YouTube. You can find videos of people who are standing trial and are standing there about to hear the verdict. They're facing a life sentence. They're facing a death sentence. They're facing multiple life sentences. And the the verdict is read guilty. And in almost every case, they have to steady themselves. Many even sit down. Because in the day of judgment, who can stand? You can't stand with that kind of intensity. Well, how much more the intensity of the wrath of God against your sin, against this world's sin? Who can stand? And the good news is the people in chapter seven can stand. So here's the second thing. We look at how to understand the chaos. Let's look next at how to stand with Jesus through it. This is interesting just in the storytelling of this because you have these seals, one, two, three, four, five, six. And then chapter seven is this break in the action. It's this pause in the action before the the last seal is opened at the beginning of chapter eight. We'll look at that in a minute. But chapter seven is answering the question that chapter six ended with, who can stand? How could you possibly stand in the face of God's wrath? How could you possibly withstand the judgment of God? And that's what chapter seven is about. Here's what it is. So verses one through eight uh, describes John hearing about this 144,000 people who are sealed. And again, not to be too confusing, but, but you had the seals that are sealing up the scroll, keeping it from opening. Here now you have this description of God's people being sealed 
In other words, they're going to still go through this trouble. They're going to still go through this pain. They're still going to go through this difficulty. But rather than collapsing under its weight, they're going to be able to stand. They're sealed. The Bible describes God's people being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so verses 1 to 8 describe this group being sealed. And it says in verse 4 of chapter 7, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe, of the sons of Israel. And then and it's all listed out there, right? And this is a lot like in the Old Testament when they list out the number of soldiers. This is a description of an army. 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, and so on. Now, this has led a lot of people to speculate, who are the 144,000? There are even some cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses who would say that 140... This is like a literal number, only 144,000 people will ever experience eternal life. And so people go, well, who are the 144,000? Is this the Jews someday, right? Because it's mentioning these, these Jews, these tribes, who, are, who is it? And a lot of people get all worked up about it. And all you got to do is keep reading. That's the answer in most of the Bible. Just keep reading and you'll get there. So, but, but, but pay attention. Look at what it says in verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed. And then look at the first few words of verse 9. After this, I looked. Now, if you were here last week, you go, wait, wait, wait. That sounds familiar. It should. Because if you were here last week, if, you, if you've been reading this, chapter 5, there's a scroll. Who can open it? And what does John say? He says, I heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then I looked, the lamb slain and standing. Okay, who's the 144,000? Because I heard, seal 144,000, verse 9. But then I looked, and when he looked, what did he see? Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And just like the lamb in chapter five informs our understanding of the lion, right? The power of Jesus comes through his suffering and resurrection. In the same way, our understanding of the 144,000 is informed by the next thing that he actually saw, which is the multitude. So what it's talking about is the complete people of God, which God had said at the very beginning, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with people who are committed to my glory. Well, that's now happening. A great multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, shouting out, crying out with a loud voice. And notice... They are standing before the throne. Do you see that in verse uh, 9? Standing before the throne. Why is that important? Who can stand was the question. These people can. And they will stand before the throne with a loud voice. I've been in some loud places before of you. Remember as a kid going to Mile High Stadium when John Elway was leading the Denver Broncos to greatness before they started giving up 70 points a week like they were a flag football team. And I remember there would be times where the mile high, like it would be shaking. You'd have to pick your drink up off the ground so it wouldn't spill. Shaking, shaking. We will, we will rock you. 
I've heard some of you talk about, you were there when the D-backs won the World Series, game seven. Bank one ballpark, I've heard a different kind of person talk about, you were at the Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) People are fainting, people are screaming. I don't know what the loudest room you've ever been in. Here's what I wanna tell you, that is a whisper compared to this sound. A great multitude that no one could number, that's the people of God and that's who will stand because the gospel is good news, not just for the nation of Israel, but for anyone who will repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. And that's who we're introduced to. So then in verse 13, one of the elders addressed me, John, they addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, sir, do you see my visitor's badge? I don't know who these people are. He says, sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How do you stand with Jesus? In the midst of a world that's crumbling and chaotic and seems like it's falling apart? How do you stand with Jesus? So that instead of experiencing the turmoil of the world as judgment and punishment, you actually experience it as purification? There's a few clues right here in this text. First, as we suffer with Jesus, these endured the tribulation, it says in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And as we've seen, this tribulation is no small thing. Jesus said in this world, you'll have trouble. It's the same Greek word, you'll have tribulation. And I just want to tell you, some of you are like going, yeah, but it's not that bad. Yes, it is. Now, will it get worse for other people? Sure. But, but God is calling us to endure tribulation. We somehow have bought into this thing in, in our Western culture that like the goal of life is to avoid pain. The goal of life is to avoid suffering. No, no, no. The goal of the Christian life is to endure it. Because Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross and you follow me. The life of the Christian is following Jesus into death into suffering, into loss, into grief. Sometimes it's suffering and loss and grief that we didn't plan for, it just comes to us. Sometimes we choose it because we choose to love. But we follow Jesus down into death with the hopes of resurrection, but we endure. The goal of this life isn't to get out of the pain, it's to get through it with Christ. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't fly over it, but we can get there because he's with us. So we suffer. We also surrender. Look at what it says in verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Notice there's no one who didn't need a washing, right? Nobody comes into this life and nobody gets through this life 
clean. Everyone's soiled. Everyone's stained. Everyone's got blood on their hands from the way we have rebelled against God. But we can have it clean. We can wash it in the blood of the lamb. Calvary's Clorox. You go to Jesus and you say, I've sinned, I've fallen short, I don't deserve grace, but I know you offer it. And rather than allowing your judgment to fall on me, can the judgment that fell on Jesus just count for me instead? And Jesus says, yes, come. You surrender. And then you also serve. You serve, verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Now get this, the only reason that someday the saints will serve him in heaven is because they were practicing on earth. And if, if you're not interested in serving the Lord now, you won't be interested in serving him then. <laughs> Sometimes we think of heaven like, well, if I get to heaven, then I'll be able to just live for me. You don't understand heaven. <laughs> Everyone who's in heaven will go, live for me? Are you kidding? I had a lifetime of that. I saw how much pain that brought. I'm not living for me. I'm living for him. And if you go, oh, well, that doesn't sound so great. Then you're going to feel real weird in heaven. And it's a sign that you're maybe not headed there yet. And this is an invitation to surrender and to serve the Lamb. To give your life for him. Now, that doesn't just mean volunteer in church, though of course I guess it would mean that, but it means live a whole life just committed to serving the Lord. That's how you stand with Jesus. You suffer, you surrender, you serve. And then what do you experience? What, what comes? What's the fruit of that? What's the, the, the life of that? Well, here's a picture of it, and it's not just in the age to come, it's even now. Look at what it says in verse 16. I'm sorry, in verse 15. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The first thing you'll experience is the sheltering of God. No more feeling exposed. Do you have moments where you feel exposed? Where you feel like, oh man, if people really knew, if people really saw, if people really understood... Oh, I feel exposed. I feel seen and I don't like it, right? There's like, oh, you see me. And then there's like, uh-oh, they see me. You don't gotta worry about that anymore. Because the one who saw everything says, you're mine. And now I will shelter you. I will cover you. This is what Jesus said as he looked out over Jerusalem and he saw people going through the chaos of a fallen world. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I long to gather you under my wing. How I long to shelter you, but you would not have me. But these people say, Lord, we'll have you. And they experience sheltering. They also experience satisfaction. No more feeling empty. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. There's actually satisfaction. It's no more chasing after the wind, but it's actually delighting in and feasting on the Lord himself. And they'll experience shepherding. Verse 17, for the lamb in their midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more feeling alone but having a shepherd. I want to stand with Jesus. But listen, this, this life is hard and it's chaotic and it feels crazy. It feels out of control, but this passage tells us it's not. But part of what I'm banking on is that it's gonna count for something, that it's gonna mean something. 
And then what it will lead to in the end will be me being more like Jesus, me being more in love with Jesus, me being more committed to Jesus, me being more delighted in the presence of Jesus. Friends, this is reality. This is what's coming. And sometimes we have these little moments that shock us and awake us and say, hey, pay attention. This is one of them. It's not an accident that you came to church on a day that we're talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, for goodness sake. Let this wake you up. Because if it doesn't, the final judgment's coming. Chapter eight, verse one. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The loudest thing you've ever heard. Silence. It's eerily quiet. It's the calm before the storm. It's the part in the movie when the soundtrack, soundtrack drops out and you know something's sneaking up. Well, here's what's sneaking up. Verse two, then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets who were given to them. We'll look at that next week. Verse five, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake, the final judgment. And yet even in the midst of that final judgment, Look at verse three. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. In the midst of the judgment, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the culmination of history, what's filling God's nose are the prayers of his faithful people. Those who stand, not in their own morality, not in their own power, not in their own goodness, but stand in the blood of the lamb. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Pray with me. Father, thank you for these wake up calls. Thank you for these moments where you grab our attention and God, that's what we want this to do. We pray that we'd have ears to hear. God, I believe you're up to something in this day and up to something here in our church. And God, we invite you to lead and to move in power. God, we invite you to convict us of sin. We invite you to bring us healing, to bring us wholeness, to lead us to repentance, to give us faith, to enlarge our heart for love, to give us a vision for the people around us who need a touch from you. God, stir it in us. Work in us. Help us to stand in a world under judgment. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.